This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. You're listening to Lost and Found. And this week, a wide-ranging journey across Florida, USA. Never smile at a crocodile. To the outsider... Florida evokes a certain kind of hot, swampy, technicolour Americana, a particular kind of heat-warped American eccentricity with occasional canasta. But we can sit here in Australia making these observations, but based on, on what? Pop culture, uh, a few US election cycles, the occasional Miami Vice rerun. <laughs> what is Florida really like? Let's find out. Uh, Beginning in Orlando. I've spent my whole life living in uh, central Florida proper. Kristen Arnett, Orlando-based writer, author of With Teeth and Mostly Dead Things. And my parents are from Florida and then my uh, grandparents are actually like from Central Florida, which is kind of unusual, um, specifically to Central Florida because it's one of those places that houses, what most people are familiar with Orlando with is the theme parks. So yeah, there's a lot of people that come there um, either for work or to visit like tourist attractions or, um, you know, kind of snowbirds, we'd say, like who moved down from up north um, once they're getting on into their golden years because they want to live someplace warm. But for myself, I think that there is to love about living specifically in Orlando is it refuses to be any one thing. Like it's a tourist destination, but it's also like a beautiful natural habitat. And it's also so much bigger than people think. There's a thriving art scene. There's sports and all kinds of things to do, like a a big melting pot of different kinds of people because it has been so transitory, people coming in and out. So you get like this great mix of different things that I think you can't get anywhere else. Plus it's also delightful weather-wise, at least when it comes to warmth. I mean, we get hurricanes and stuff too. So I guess there's that. (laughs) Orlando specifically is consistently changing. And it is just a a place that um, people outside of it have a lot of fantasies about. Um, You know, like sometimes good, sometimes bad. Like people have the idea of like the magic kingdom. It's like a (laughs) magical place. Like it's where all your dreams come true. And then other people are like, oh, it's a place where it's like Florida man and people act crazy and it's like oh you know people doing like bath salts or somebody you know going through the mcdonald's drive through and calling 911 because they didn't have chicken nuggets one time like it's like it's this interesting mix of like how people view a place and i think it keeps its mystery maybe because people think they know what it is and it, it constantly refuses to be labeled so okay. i think it just yeah, it refuses to be pinned down. <laughs> do, do locals do theme park? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Because you usually grow up knowing somebody who works there. And if you work there, you get passes and you can get people in. So it's one of those things, too, where it's like also it's a lot of summer jobs for young people or people coming back from college. So there's always somebody, you know, in your family. Like, for instance, my sister <laughs> is the Little Mermaid at Disney. Like, she's one of the Little Mermaids. So she's does like the live show and sing. So it's like you always know somebody that works at the park who can get you in. So people definitely go. But I will say that people like to go and not pay. <laughs> Do you have a particular personal favorite? Oh, goodness. I actually really like to go to Epcot, actually. Um, there's this like 
food and wine festival they have where you can basically drink around the world. You go to like different like quote unquote countries and then they have like a different alcoholic beverage there and you just get, basically go get drunk. What's not to love. Exactly. <laughs> Is Orlando you you describe it there as as a pretty dynamic place? Is it is it a place which his, his character is constantly in change? I would say that I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I think it's a place that likes to be a little corporate in the ways that it like wants to cater to people coming in. And I think that so much of the change has been slow moving when it comes on like a social level or community service kind of level. Like it's also a very, Florida is a conservative state. Um, mm. You know, like we are dealing with a lot of like government that is conservative and like very like moralistically driven. And that's frustrating to deal with quite often because so, so many of the people for a long time who were voters who kept those people in are like, we do have like a large population of 50 plus um, in the age bracket. And it's like the people who maybe traditionally voted more conservatively, but now we have like a lot of young people deciding to stay. And so I think a lot of that stuff is finally shifting, but it's been a lot more slow moving. Because if, if you are living in a state that won't support, you know, if you're queer and it doesn't want you to be able to be married or adopt children or any of those things, it's like a hard place to be like a young 18 year old and say that you yeah. want to stay there. So um, a, a group of people has been deciding to stay and that group is growing and growing and the, the art scene is growing and growing. And I think that's been a slow, but very good and very dynamic change recently. And so I would say that it's fast change and like the kind of way that like Florida sells itself on tourism, but maybe a slower moving change on how we're like changing things in like government and like socially speaking. Excuse the commercialism, but it's tricky to separate commerce from any conversation about American culture. And here we must deal with what has become an American and eventually global cultural institution. I'm talking about McDonald's. But expect the unexpected. I have it on good authority that Florida is home to many unusual, non-standard restaurant iterations. A non-standard McDonald's, and of course, non-standard is ultimately in the eye of the beholder here. Max Krieger runs the Twitter account at non-standard McD. Uh, he's the animating force behind a new documentary aiming to preserve the memory of Florida's many non-standard McDonald's restaurants. Is a McDonald's that deviates from what we expect of a McDonald's in an interesting or memorable way. Now, this can be something as simple as sharing a space with something unusual. A popular submission that I posted, and it did a lot of high numbers, was a McDonald's that shared space with a hardware store. So it can be something <laughs> as mundane as something like that, or you can have on the complete other end, some of the McDonald's that I'll be talking about today, which are these sprawling entertainment complexes filled with bells and whistles and lights that are multiple stories, often in very tourist heavy areas. So that entire spectrum is what I would consider non-standard. This sort of idea of, of non-standard fast food architecture, as you just demonstrated, is a thing which might occur anywhere 
in the glorious United States mm-hmm. of America. But your, <laughs> your your documentary focuses on on Florida. Why is yes. that? I chose Florida because of its sheer density of remaining non-standard McDonald's. Um, <laughs> one of the thematic things you will hear repeated over and over again as I talk about this page is that non-standard McDonald's are disappearing, and there's a multitude of factors for that. But Florida, being what it is, um, both a state known for its tourism and for just being a home for oddities of all sorts, has managed to sustain its population of non-standard McDonald's to the point where I'll be able to visit enough to count on two hands, which is... <laughs> A lot more than many states have nowadays. Is there something about the, the Floridian temperament that, that makes it so prone to the, the non-standard McDonald's notion? Yes, that's that's the other part. I believe there really is something very Floridian in nature about the non-standard McDonald's and non-standard, uh, quote-unquote, roadside American attractions in general. Uh, Florida is a state... You know, a lot of it was swamp before it was developed by people like, you know, Walt Disney at, at, at all um, into the major tourist mecca. And then parts of it are, you know, beautiful, picturesque beaches that have been built out in these megalopolis sort of scenarios like mm. Miami. And I think the combination of the two kind of creates this sense of... Um, you know, this, ever since the stories of people looking for the fountain of youth in Florida, it's just attracted people who are going seeking something larger than life and yep. far away from all of their problems. And I think that's the perfect place for a non-standard McDonald's to thrive. All right. Now, you're going to take us on a small tour of, of some <laughs> yes. standout examples to begin in, in Orlando, I think. This is probably my personal favorite non-standard McDonald's because it's so emblematic about everything I find fascinating about them. And this is called the Epic McDonald's. It is. Yes. Supersized, if you will. Yes. Super. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Supersized. This is um, on iDrive in Orlando, Florida, which is a large stretch of kind of off the beaten path, the less glamorous tourist areas of Orlando, the the places that aren't Disney or aren't Universal. You'll find resale shops for various, you know, knickknacks and tchotchkes there. And you'll find some shady roadside attractions. And right in the middle of it sits this two-story McDonald's where you can order pizza and eat McPizza. It's one of the last places in the country where you can eat the McPizza. I'm tempted to ask you to describe that, but I'm not sure that I want to know. (laughs) You know, I haven't eaten it, so I don't think I can do it justice. I hope to change that soon. But the the, the history of this place was very interesting in that it started, as I mentioned before, uh, many non-standard McDonald's are the product of a franchise owner with a dream. And the franchise that operated this location was called Werther Foods. And they operated several other McDonald's in the area that I would consider non-standard, but they've all uh, since passed on uh, to the great McBeyond. And so this is the only one remaining kind of of their non-standard McDonald's empire. And in its initial incarnation, the thing I loved so much about it is it was just this massive building with neon French fries on the side, a giant Coca-Cola logo. There was this statue in the lobby of Ronald McDonald's hands lovingly cradling the planet Earth. Um, It really had to be seen to be believed. And every year, it felt like something else was added to this McDonald's. It was filled with everything you can imagine. Taxidermied alligators, arcade video games, um, a Statue of Liberty was in there at one point. And it was just this complete hodgepodge 
that was, you know, we have to compete with Disney. We have to compete with Universal. Let's throw everything we can think of into this McDonald's to try to get people to pull off and eat at our restaurant. That was the energy that was encapsulated there, which I think is the driving force behind non-standard McDonald's Mm. at its most raw (laughs) and perhaps unrefined. Now that we're filled to the brim with the rare and highly sought-after McPizza, I think it's time to, to head south. We're going to Miami. The fact that Florida is a highly multicultural place, a concentrated melting pot even, has probably been lost in recent commentary. It's the middle ground where cultures from America's South, the Caribbean, even South America meet. So, in coming to Miami, there's a specific place I want to go and a specific person I'd like to meet. Edward, tell us your story. How did you come to be in, in Miami? Uh, it's a very long story. I, I don't know if you've seen my page. I've been around. <laughs> Edouard Duval-Carrier, a contemporary artist, curator, based in Little Haiti, Miami. But interestingly, I was living in Paris. I had been invited as a Haitian artist uh, to represent uh, Haiti during the bicentennial of the French Revolution. And they wanted to have a representation from the Caribbean. Of course, Haiti was the crown jewel of, of colonial possessions of France. And uh, and of course, we decided that we didn't want to be. And uh, it ensued this massive rebellion and revolution. Anyways, 200 years later, they were celebrating the the that and I was invited to participate in an exhibit called La Révolution Française sous les Tropiques. And hence I was there for maybe five or six years in Paris. And one day I woke up and I said, I really didn't emigrate to France. So um, <laughs> I had to find a, a better situation. Anyways, I looked around if I had to go to New York or go to Los Angeles, because I did have my green card, as they say, and I visited Miami and I opted to come here. It's been interesting. I mean, complicated, but you know, like from my standpoint, very beneficial to me, I have to say. But it's always been a very contentious position because I'm from Haiti. And Haiti being what it is, you know, like carries some sort of weight. And hence, uh, anyways, I'm here. Uh, I've been actively producing, presenting, exhibiting and organizing as well. Uh, exhibits here, not only for Haitian artists, my fellow colleagues, but for the whole of the region. I mean, the United States is like a focal point and Miami is, as I say myself, to the great distress of everybody else, that Miami is not the south of the US, but it's the north of the Caribbean. Take me to, to Little Haiti in, in Miami. Describe that place for me. It is you know, a very interesting community. You know, I mean, at the beginning, it was like these big plantations of citruses and avocados and stuff like that. And it's been parceled off. And at the beginning, it was never really wealthy. I mean, even though we're very close to the water because the, the, the wealth is in relationship to the beaches, to the water. And uh, in this region, though it is very close, me, I mean, I just came back from this event and it was very close to the, to the bay and I'm only maybe four or five blocks away. So 
It was, uh, I don't know how it started, literally. I think it's the church that really uh, decided so, because there are also some politics involved in the sense that it was a shoot point for all the immigrants that were arriving at one point to Miami, you know, like e either boat people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They've organized themselves, in, you know, like into some sort of political entity. And it, they managed to garner this space for themselves, which is, but at the same time is changing right now. But historically, it was the shoot point for any Haitians. The, the church was there. The, the services were there for immigrants. You have to remember that, that Haitians are not anglophones they are more francophones and creolophones so i mean they needed a, a space with some structure that could ingratiate them in the city and this was the neighborhood me i'm come very much later in that history uh, because I just like the idea of having a little Haiti somewhere else. <laughs> so I moved. <laughs> I, I literally love the idea. You know, I mean, I'm not moving back home, but I'm moving back to, uh, I mean, I thought in my head, living in Paris, it would be a similar thing from, you know, yeah. like, I mean, very close to Haiti. Well, it wasn't like that, but it is, you know, like a Haitian neighborhood with organizations and support system for the Haitian community. And the most important of them until now has been the Catholic Church. And uh, the Archbishop, which was, uh, the, I mean, you have to understand that uh, they are important. I mean, the Catholic Church, and they've managed to have their Haitian flock. Still, people are coming legally or illegally, and they, they find some sort of support here. And it's been very interesting witnessing that. But they are moving out. And that's the particularity of this mm. neighborhood. Investors and real estate people are looking at it as, I mean, first of all, it's higher up, literally from the sea level. I mean, it's higher up than anywhere else in the city. And uh, people are eyeing it very well, especially with the, uh. with the situation, with the with ecology and the water rising and everything. So, I mean, this place has become very coveted. The money is going to the higher ground. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I think that will solve their problem. Yes. You know? yes. <laughs> know what you're feeling and i feel it too we are hungry and good news uh, max is taking us to clearwater west of tampa uh max th this this doesn't look very standard this mcdonald's is kind of a, a beach shack the textbook beach shack max krieger it's got a beautiful blue roof and it's got open air seating right by Clearwater Beach with a very picturesque view. A lot simpler, a more understated than this, you know, three ring circus that is the epic McDonald's. But the thing I like the most about it is that it's an example of how non-standard McDonald's often better serve the area they are in that they uh -huh. adapt and kind of try to make themselves unique to fit their locale. And with a view like that, um, you really wouldn't want to pass it up. And it's still around. It still exists today. I've been told the seagulls are very voracious and you should guard your French fries carefully. And it's simple, it's picturesque, and it's an example of a McDonald's trying to blend in rather than trying to assert itself as you know, some as you mentioned, what we associate with being a very uniform brand, a very uniform image, and it, there's an elegant beauty about it that I think shows another side, or maybe a calmer, more elegant side to a non-standard McDonald's. I don't know that I had as many fries as I would have liked. Get off! 
But no matter. It's worth it for the, the chance to come face to face with the local fauna. Uh, makes you wonder what else is out there in the urban wilderness of Florida. Everything is all around you. If I come back in from just, you know, refilling the bird feeder, I have to check to make sure that I don't have uh, caterpillars on me. <laughs> Things like that that have fallen from the trees. Jeff Vandermeer, best-selling author and Tallahassee resident. I have to carefully pick them off and put them back on the right tree. And luckily, I know now which caterpillars go with which trees, so <laughs> I can repatriate them properly. So if you, if, you, if you stood still in your backyard for sort of more than 10 minutes, you'd be consumed by abundant nature. To some, de- some degree, yes. And, and we're, we're blessed in Tallahassee with the fact that it's actually hilly. And so we have these little ravines that could never be developed. And one of them is behind our house. And so, you know, we have box turtles down there that are 40, 50 years old that have never, ever had to cross a road. You decided to, to rewild your place. Yeah. We found this amazing place with this trough of woods that, you know, is kind of communal because there's an easement. And uh, I thought it was amazing. And then as soon as I started actually identifying this, this species, I realized it was full of invasive uh, plants <laughs> that uh, had no value to the wildlife and that actually were strangling out uh, a lot of the native plants. And so it was kind of a food wasteland for wildlife. Mm. So first thing I did is pull them all out, which uh, meant digging up like 4,000 air potato tubers. Are you keeping notes on, on, on critters in your little vicinity? You've mentioned caterpillars and your turtles, wildlife more broadly. I think the trail cams that I've put out have been extremely instructional. I used to, you know, certainly appreciated raccoons, but seeing them on the trail cams and, and getting to know individual raccoons and seeing the individual personalities uh, was quite instructive. Seeing two adult raccoons that had grown up in our yard come back to use the little kiddie pool I have out there for them uh, and kind of reminisce in a sense by mock wrestling in it like they used to do when they were kids and then going off their separate ways. You know, it's, it's quite nice to kind of realize that they they have personalities and and the birds too. You learn, you know, one summer tanager from another. Some have more attitude than others and more some have more personality. So, uh, that also kind of like expands your world. And then you also learn home remedies you didn't think of. So we have yellow jacket nests around here. And some of the neighbors don't really uh, like yellow jackets. I've, I've never had a problem with them, but I, I do understand. And uh, I found that if you put a dab of peanut butter by the ground nest of, a, of yellow jackets, the raccoons will smell the peanut butter. <laughs> and then when they get there, they will identify that it's a nest and they will dig it out and eat every single last one of them. These are wasps to, to the Australian listener. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> sorry. And, and, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's worth four or five, five times. And it's a very elegant solution. Yes. The raccoons would eventually find the nest anyway, but not on the time schedule that maybe the homeowner would like. So, you know, I, I tell this to a neighbor, they look at me like a nuts and then they try it and then they're like, oh, wow, that actually worked, you know. Okay. There's this slight sort of awkward politics there in, in your, your Tallahassee neighborhood. Of, suddenly you are the focus for every raccoon within a, a 20 square kilometer zone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, luckily a dab of peanut butter won't habituate a raccoon. And that's the other thing that's really strange about or unique about this area is the fact that the house is like high up with these windows that you can really see down into so I can observe the wild life from afar 
uh, and then the trough of woodland. So the raccoons don't really ever come up to the houses either. So hmm. they're they're weirdly urban, non-urban raccoons. They they are very very frightful of people. They don't get into the trash cans and they just stay down in the woods. So, but they are in an urban area. It's the whole hat thing, you know. It's 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 a lingering historical thread. Yeah, no, they they have a very unique raccoon culture, I must say. Does this, the work you put in here and, and the place that you're creating, does it make it a hard place to leave eventually? Um, I think I am going to be here until I die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I'm laughing about that. Maybe the, maybe the last two years of social isolation <laughs> um, make everything seem a little absurd on, on the edges. Um, like I have no choice. I'm going to be here, you know. But yeah, I, I, th- I think I'm, I'm kind of committed uh, to this uh, for better or worse. And, and I know it's a situation with climate crisis and everything that uh, we're going to suffer some losses here, that this landscape is going to change. Yeah. And I have to, um, I have to adapt and, and be good with that. But, um, but at the same time, I put so much into it and, and I, I love it so much. It would be very hard, hard to leave. You will one day be carried out by raccoons. Yes, that's entirely possible. I, I, I will <laughs> hopefully have trained them to do that by then. You've been listening to Lost and Found this week in Florida. You heard from Kristen Arnett, Max Krieger, Edouard Duval-Carrier and Jeff Vandermeer. For more American travel, find Lost and Found episodes on Los Angeles, the Brooklyn Bridge, Silicon Valley. They're all waiting for you on the ABC Listen app. Producers are Lisa DeVissi and Alan Whedon. Technical production by Brendan O'Neill. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.